All right, guys, welcome back to another episode. We're continuing our high yield boards review series. So today on this episode, we'll be talking about some sickle cell. Um, you know, this is a hugely important topic. It could also be a three hour lecture because it affects pretty much every organ from head to toe. So I kind of thought, uh, let's tackle the highest yield for boards and the most common things you'll see slash the most scary things you'll see. And we'll knock it out in a couple minutes. So we won't get too in the weeds about, uh, you know, uh, I don't even remember where the mutation is and the pathophys, but let's just dive right into it. The most common complication of sickle cell that you will absolutely see is a vaso-occlusive episode. So, uh, Shanu, do you want to walk us through kind of what a, a pain episode or a vaso-occlusive crisis might look like? Yeah, so, you know, the thing is with sickle cell disease, we typically, you know, try to think that it's a, it's a pediatric complication. We try to typically try to think that, you know, we see this more in kids, but it's something that we need to, you know, be aware of that this is a very, you know, common adult uh, complication as well. You will have pa uh, patients, you know, coming in with um, acute uh, pain crises, which is also what it's known as or sickle cell crises. And um, the main thing that you got to understand behind what um, the pathogenesis of, is, of this is that, you know, when you have a patient with sickle cell, you obviously have these red blood cells that are, that are deformed. They're literally in the shape of a sickle. They're not, um, they form what we call the laminar type of flow, as opposed to, you know, when you have like a normal, regular type of flow. So when you have a laminar type of flow, obviously that, that forms like a nidus for um, patients to have like not an appropriate amount of flow. So in, especially in the microvascular beds, this is especially where you're going to have all these clumps of blood cells that are not flowing appropriately. So as a result, you know, when you have these clumps of little thrombi that are forming because of these misshaped RBCs, what's going to happen is that you're not going to have enough blood supply to, to the organs. You're not going to have enough blood supply to your tissues. And so as a result, you're going to have ischemia. And obviously, when you have ischemia, you have inflammation. And when you have inflammation, you have a lot of um, inflammatory markers that are coming in. And uh, that's one of the biggest reasons why you have so much pain. Um, as you guys remember, pain is one of the biggest, um, you know, uh, signs of inflammation. So um, that's kind of the basics of or the pathogenesis behind vaso-occlusive uh, you know, crisis. And, you know, you have a lot of different flavors when it comes to vaso-occlusive crisis. You have you know, your acute chest syndrome. You have, uh, you know, your, your, well, it comes to, you know, pediatric patients. You have dactylitis. Um, and, you know, you have bone crises. Again, all of this stems from the fact that you're not having an adequate amount of blood supply to your tissue. You're not perfusing well, and this is what's causing you to have all this um, ischemia and pain. I, I've noticed that, you know, clinically, patient, patients have like their typical locations. Like some patients might always have buttock pain or leg pain or arm pain. Some right. always get chest pain. So it, it's, uh, people have like their kind of stereotypical episodes. And of course, leave it to Shanu, you couldn't help but nerd out about the physics. Shanu, <laughs> uh, what about, what are some triggers for a vaso-occlusive episode? Yeah, so I mean, some of the triggers, um, especially they're really important to know so that, um, so that way you can now all, you know, always educate your patients for, to prevent further episodes. So one of the biggest um, you know, triggers would be dehydration um, in patients. And um, obviously, if you don't have enough blood volume, that itself precipitates, you know, not a good amount of flow in your, in your, in your vasculature. Um, and also, you know, have infections as well, which can be a, a common trigger as well. Stress is another, another trigger for um, vaso-occlusive crisis. It could be anything um, in terms of whether it's mental stress or even physical stress, um, which could even include, you know, um, if patients are in a uh, relatively hypoxic uh, or, you know, hypoxic environment, like if someone's going, let's say, 
you know, um, hiking or something like that. And, and, and obviously those can precipitate those type of sickle cell crises. So these are some of the major common, um, you know, uh, precipitants or triggers for uh, sickle cell crises. Um, you guys have anything else you guys wanted to add? No, that's perfect. Um, in terms of uh, management, um, you know, along the lines of dehydration, one of the hallmark key points in management is to give them IV fluids. Yeah. Um, so the fluid I choose to use is half normal saline because it kind of pushes volume into the cell itself and prevents further sickling. And so I'll try to resuscitate, with, resuscitate the patient with like high volume, half normal saline usually. Um, what else can you give in terms of uh, pain control for, the, for uh, these episodes? So for pain control, um, one of the hallmarks is obviously starting with, you know, short acting opioids or NSAIDs if they have no evidence of renal failure. Um, but opioids are kind of like going to be your mainstay because a lot of times these patients probably have tried other things about the counter at home without relief, which is why they're in the hospital. Um, some of the things that, you know, you can escalate to if the short acting opioids are not really helping as much as PCA pumps, you know, sometimes you might see patients with that. And if you have a patient that's on that, it's extremely important to keep on reevaluating them. So you can always adjust the rate that the pain pump is going. Um, something that I saw as well, which I thought was pretty interesting, and I've never used myself specifically, is um, if the patients are not quite responsive to opioids, you can use ketamine, a really low dose of it that can be given intranasally, um, which is an NMB antagonist. Um, and sometimes like that can really help these patients. Um, it's very important that, you know, when your patients are improved and they're leaving the hospital, you know, you're discharging them with some medications, some pain medications as well, so that they can de-escalate. Because the worst thing you can do is send them home and they don't have anything to help them out over there. And it's going to be very important for them to have more long-term management as well, more long-term, you know, pain management and medications for if they have mild, um, vasoclusive symptoms at home. Yeah, I think I have something just to add on that. Just when, you know, when, when sickle cell patients come in, especially with these crises, just to establish what their home, you know, pain regimen is uh, medication-wise. A lot of times they're on, um, you know, opiates and such at home. And it's good for us to know in the inpatient setting what they're on, as, you know, we're, we sometimes don't like to give opiates normally. And uh, with these patients, they, you know, they definitely need it. So I think it's good to get a baseline of what they're on outside of the hospital before coming in, just to know what they're pain thresholds are and things of that sort. Yeah, I think you make an excellent point that we're taught nowadays not to give opioids for, you know, the right reasons. But this is the disease that is the hallmark presentation is pain. And we should take that seriously. There are studies looking at long-term addiction in patients who have sickle cell, and there's not a higher rate of addiction to opioids compared to the general population. So don't shy away from giving opioids. But then again, also make sure they're on their NSAIDs, even uh, like lidocaine patches, hot packs, that helps vasodilate and help the painful area. So there's a lot you can try with these patients. But in terms of boards, um, they'll likely ask you about pretty much fluids, uh, reversing the trigger, and then giving opioid analgesia. That's definitely a fair uh, question that they might ask you about. Um, one thing that yeah. I... I just wanted to add on one thing also is that, you know, even with uh, controlling pain, it's not just a quality of life measure as well, you know, just trying to like relieve their symptoms, but it's also like treating the, the disease itself because, you know, Pain itself is another trigger for a sickle, uh, sickle cell crisis. So, you know, the more that you control their pain, the better control you can have of, um, you know, further crises episodes or their current crisis episode as well. So, yeah. One, one last uh, point with uh, pain episodes. I've seen this in practice 
maybe inappropriately done, not to throw shade at anyone, uh, but it also fair, fair for a test is, do you transfuse these patients? By the tone of my question, <laughs> you should not do transfusions for patients with pain episodes unless they're profoundly anemic and you think that's contributing. You know, a lot of patients with sickle cell will have baseline hemoglobins of like six to seven. You cannot use seven as a target and do uh, simple transfusions. Of course, if they're coming in with a hemoglobin of four and you think that's contributing, that's a different story. But there's no role in routine transfusions in the uh, acute pain episodes. So shifting gears a little bit, the other common presentation and common, you know, fair question on a test, and the scary thing, because it's the most common cause of death in a patient with sickle cell, is acute chest syndrome. So I guess the first question is, how do you define acute chest, and you know, what what are you watching for uh, in terms of your images and your presentation? So, like Dr. Gottman just said, acute chest syndrome, one of the most severe complications of you know um, sickle cell crisis. So its definition is, you know, a patient presenting with chest pain and other um, indications of respiratory compromise, including shortness of breath, hypoxia. Um, and also, you know, if you have an image in testing, a new infiltrate on that. So if you have this constellation of symptoms or on fevers as well, if you have this constellation of symptoms, acute chest syndrome should be one of the things on your mind because you obviously want to rule out the things that can kill the patients quickly. It doesn't mean that the patient can't just have a pneumonia that precipitated their sickle cell crisis, but you want to obviously rule out things that can kill the patients um, the quickest. So in order to manage that, in order to evaluate that further, you obviously want to get some labs, you want to get some imaging tests, you know, look for what the lungs look like. Um, you want to manage their respiratory status with giving them supplemental oxygen to keep them high, um, you know, oxygenated. Um, antibiotics are also recommended for these patients because if you can't rule out an infection at the same time, and you typically want to treat them like you, you treat a regular community-acquired pneumonia with a macrolide and a third, you know, generation cephalosporin. Um, acute chest syndrome is actually one of the indications as well for transfusion in patients with sickle cell crisis. Now, whether you want to do a simple transfusion and exchange transfusion kind of depends on a case-to-case -case basis based on how the patient might tolerate the, um, the excessive fluids that you're given. Um, but that's one of the indications for it. And also, if the patient has had um, an episode of acute chest syndrome once, that's also an indication for this patient to be on hydroxyurea moving forward. Very well summarized. I have not much to add. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I always have something to say. So the, the only thing I, I will say is with the, with the transfusions, again, if you're at your baseline hemoglobin, you know, that's when you'll do the exchange transfusion. And if you're coming in anemic, you might start with a simple transfusion and work your way up. But uh, excellently summarized, acute uh, chest, uh, you know. Um, the last thing I think is worth uh, quickly recapping is what's the role of hydria or hydroxyurea? and maybe some indications for it. So, you know, hydroxyurea, it was discovered as kind of like a disease modifying agent. For the last 30 years or so, it was the only drug we'd really had for uh, sickle cell. Nowadays, if you want to read a little bit, there's a couple of new drugs on the market, but hydroxyurea is still kind of the workhorse. It pretty much uh, increases the hemoglobin F uh, portion, and it also is a nitric oxide donor. So it increases vasodilation. So the combination of those two things basically prevents pain episodes. Um, so you mentioned acute chest uh, syndrome history. That's one indication. Uh, the other indication is if you have frequent pain episodes, uh, like more than two to three a year, uh, you might just start your patient on hydroxyurea to prevent uh, future episodes. And the last one I came across is just severe profound anemia.
those patients, uh, that's a, a strong indication to try hydroxyurea. You know, brings up a pretty good point about um, exchange transfusion. And I think it's worth mentioning just like some other indications as well, um, where you can also see exchange transfusion being used as a as probably the frontline uh, management. Um, and that would be, you know, patients coming in with, you know, stroke um, and patients who have sickle cell crises, you know, especially, again, it's the same pathophysiology. Basically, you're having sickling in the cerebral vasculature. Um, and when you have a patient coming in with stroke, um, that's an indication where you have to do exchange transfusion. Um, and then other indications would typically be even acute ch uh, chest syndrome, like Nina was mentioning, um, especially that severe hypoxia, um, you know, with uh, regular medical management. And if you have patients with um, even severe uh, priapism, you know, if it's not even getting better with, again, medical management, exchange transfusion is indicated. But stroke is, a, is an indication where you just straight up go to exchange uh, transfusion as the first modality um, of, of management. And, um, you know, just to kind of recap again, exchange transfusion is basically where you're, you know, replacing your, you know, the patient's blood um, with donor blood. And you're trying to, the goal is to try to reduce um, the percentage of hemoglobin S. And it's, you know, typically, I think it's less than 20% um, that you typically want 30. to reduce it to just to 30. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, so, very good point, uh, Shanu. Very good point. All right. So, I can uh, kind of summarize the highest yield points here, stuff that will be in a lot of the stuff you'll see in, in practice in real life, but for the purpose of uh, taking a test um, with multiple choice answers to get a license, um, the stuff they'll ask you about is pain episodes, know the trigger, hydrate them, use NSAIDs, but don't shy away from uh, opioid analgesics. Make sure you know the definition of acute chest, know to look for infiltrates on imaging plus a constellation of other findings like chest pain and fever. And then I think it's fair to know when to transfuse versus exchange transfuse. And I think it's fair to know when to use hydroxyurea. You know, outside of those complications, those are, there's other complications important to know for clinical practice, but they're very low yield for uh, purposes of a, a test. So, all right. Well, hope you guys enjoyed our uh, sickle cell topic and uh, we'll catch you on the next episode.